greatest stories of faith come from God's chosen people in the Old Testament. What can we learn from these men and women who were earnestly seeking God? Walk with us as we capture snapshots of faith from the great cloud of witnesses and the lessons we can learn from them today. Well, we get to continue our series. Uh, we're in this snapshot, Snapshots series, and we're actually almost done with it. Um, and this morning, we're going to be talking about Elisha and the call of God. And I want to say up front, because it's going to be confusing a little bit, uh, the story of Elisha and Elijah overlap. So I'm going to do my best to pronunciate really clearly. <laughs> But I wish God had just given them different names. It would have been, if it was like Ned and Barry, then it'd be like, oh yeah, that's super clear. Barry, you know, whatever. But he didn't, so this is what we're dealing with. Um, I want to give you a little bit of back, background, backstory on, right, in these snapshot series, we're kind of jumping into someone's life. We're jumping into a particular place in the Bible. And we're not talking about everything, but in order to understand a little bit of what's going on, we have to talk about what's happening kind of in the context. And so for both Elijah and Elisha, they're both prophets in about the ninth century BCE. So think 850 to 800 BCE, so 850 years before Christ comes. That's the time that they're kind of doing their thing, that they're uh, prophets. Also, it's important to note that the kingdom of Israel is divided at this point. And we've talked about this before, but it's worth just mentioning. At this point, there's two separate kingdoms. There's the northern tribes. There's 10 of them. And that's called really Israel. And then there's the southern two tribes. And they call that kingdom Judah. And so they're divided. And both Elijah and Elisha are both prophets in this northern kingdom primarily. So that's kind of where they're doing their thing. Also something to keep in mind is um, the king mainly, at least in our story, is this guy, King Ahab. Now Ahab is a really interesting guy because he's really quite terrible. Um, and he, uh, let me just read you what it says. This is from 1 Kings 16:30. It says, he, Ahab, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. It's not something you want said about you. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve and worship him. So, what happened years before this guy Jeroboam, he created these other places of worship. So the kingdom of Israel splits into two. And this guy Jeroboam is king in the northern part. And he doesn't want his people going down to Jerusalem to worship. So he sets up places to worship in two other places called Dan and Bethel. And guess what he sets up there to worship? He sets up two golden calves which should remind us of another story. And he says, these are the gods that delivered you from, uh, from Egypt. So not only does Ahab find with this worship that is getting off course, it's not what God wanted for them, to make it worse, he marries just this terrible woman. And this has nothing to do about women. She's just not a good person. She is the priestess of another religion of Baal. 
So you've got these two people who are gonna be leading Israel. One is just a really bad guy, and his wife is just as bad, and they're like the perfect power evil couple. I mean, they were perfect for each other. It was a great match, you know. It was just terrible for the nation of Israel. And I say all this so you understand the context at which they're gonna be prophets for God. This is not an easy time to be a prophet. They are murdering and killing the prophets off. It's a bad season for Israel. They are going astray. They are being led from the highest point of leadership away from God. And this is where we're going to jump into this story. And Elijah has been battling Ahab and Jezebel for a while. I mean, he is going to war with these people. And he's been doing this thing, and he is tired. And we're going to read in just a second. He has battled them, and he's had fire battles and all sorts of stuff. If you want to read previous to this in 1 Kings, I would highly suggest it. But he's exhausted because he feels like he's done everything God asked him to do, and it doesn't seem to be working. And he is at the end of his rope. He is tired. He asks God. He wants to lie down and die. He is done. That's where we find ourselves. And the problem really of this passage is this. The world in their context is broken. The world's broken, the bad guys are winning, and all hope seems lost. Right, does it sound familiar? My, I, I think every single generation gets to that point. And what's gonna be interesting as we read here is this. How does God answer them? What is God going to do in that context? So let's read. This is 1 Kings chapter 19, starting halfway through verse 13. I'm calling it 13b. This is the word of the Lord. And God is speaking to Elijah in a gentle whisper. Then a voice said to him, this is God, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mohalah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. That's the word of the Lord for us today. 
It's a fascinating story. We can't even cover all of the incredible things that are in this. I'm just saying that up front. But what we're really going to talk about this morning is this idea of calling. What does it mean to be called by God to do something? And what does it mean for God to help you call other people into things? And I want to say up front, before we talk about what those two things mean, is why does God even need to call people? What is the point? And here's the premise I want to share with you. Because we live in a broken world that God, and, and we just sang about this, that God is in the process of renewing. God is renewing our world. He is inviting people to partner with him to help renew this place so that God's kingdom would show up on this earth. And I want you to think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve, male and female, puts them in the garden and says, you are to steward and rule and take care of this planet. We were created for this rock. And ever since then, God has been working through people to bring forth his redemptive plan. He could just do it all himself, and certainly God is sovereign and God is powerful, and God is the initiator of all things. But for whatever reason, God wants to use you and me in his process. We are pivotal to God's redemptive plan. And so I want to talk about this this morning in two different ways. What does it mean to be called, and what does it mean to call other people? And we're going to talk about how God might be calling us to invest in other people's lives first, because that's kind of how the story goes. So we're going to talk about the caller. God empowers his people to call others. That's what we see God doing with Elijah. He uses Elijah to go call Elisha to be a prophet. And Elijah had been doing all these wonderful miracles, all this crazy stuff. But more than that, God says, part of your role is also to help equip other people to do the same thing. It's not just about doing wonderful things. It's about equipping people to do the same thing because at some point, Elijah is not going to be here anymore. And who's going to do that role after? So it has to do with equipping. And I want to say this, the first thing, God's people have always been disciples who make disciples. This is what it has always been about from the very beginning. So we see this with Elijah and Elisha, but if we go back, think of Moses and Joshua. God raises up Moses and he's going and then God brings Joshua and they have this overlapping where they're doing things together. He's learning from him. And then guess what? God is not going to allow Moses to go into the promised land for reasons we don't have to go into right now. He's going to end and then Joshua is going to lead those people into Israel. There's this overlapping phase where there's this discipleship happening. Fast forward, we see this modeled the same way with Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene, and he doesn't just do everything by himself. It would have been easier, I'm sure of it. No, he gets a bunch of disciples together, and he trains them, and he spends time with them, and he pours into them, because at some point, Jesus is going to be gone from this earth in the way that he was physically. And they, the disciples, are going to be the ones that actually spread this gospel around the known world. This is how God has been working that's why Jesus says in Matthew 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He doesn't say go therefore and even be a disciple. That's implied. He says go make disciples. 
God's people are always disciples and disciple makers. It's a both and. It's always both. Think of it like this. I've never ran in a relay race, but I've seen pictures and watched the Olympics. So picture you're running the Olympics and you know, you're running and you got your baton and you're gonna pass the baton off to the next person, right? So they're running and I think it goes something like this. As this person's coming up, this person starts running already. And they're gonna start moving and hopefully they don't trip or anything, but they start running. There's a point where they're both running real close at top speed, they're handing the baton off and then that person takes off, right? That little part where you have the baton, that's discipleship in our picture. That period just happens to last a lot longer for us. When we're running with someone, pouring into them, passing things on to them so that they can go and take this thing further and faster than we ever could. Spirit-filled discipleship, this is how the gospel is actually going out into the earth. It's through equipping and sending people. Second thing, and this, this is what was really sticking out to me in this story, that God answers prayer through people. God answers prayer through people. So Elijah, like I said, he's at the end of his rope. He is depressed. He's having a complete meltdown. I picture like when my kids get really bummed out and they're, like, and they're just like, right? They're just like fall on the couch and they're just mopey and you're just like, Ugh. and we, you know, as adults, we try not to do it. We hide it in, in different ways, right? But inwardly, we do it all the time. Elijah is done and God speaks to him. And his answer to his massive problem with these two evil couple taking over all things, the answer is, hey, go anoint three different people. That's the answer. There's no fire from heaven, right? There's no special thing happening. It's, hey, go invest in someone else. I'm not sure it's the answer that Elijah was looking for. The answer is go equip and go train and go spend time with this person. It's not what he was looking for. But I want to say to you this morning, people are the most important thing on this earth. People matter most. Not money, not clothes, not houses, not all that stuff. That stuff is all going to go away. And guess what? We're really good at taking care of those things, right? And I'm not even saying it's wrong to do that. I have a house and all these things, right? But we know how to take care of our money. We know how to make money grow and invest in all these things. Do we do that with people? Because that's the thing that Jesus came to redeem. Jesus didn't come to redeem bank accounts and programs and systems. He came to redeem people because people are made in his image. And God answers prayer by raising up people. God's answer to Elijah's problem was Elisha. And if you look at the Bible, whenever, go back to the Exodus, there's this massive problem. What does God do? Speaks to Moses. He raises a person up. Look at the book of Judges. What does God do? People are invading our territory. I want to raise a person up. Samson. God uses people. God wants to use you to be the answer to someone else's prayer. If we do not discipleship, who's God, who is God going to use? If we're not raising people up, and we already know that God uses people, we're not given of much to work with because God wants to work 
through people. It's abs- I mean, think about it. God himself becomes a human being in Jesus. We're about to celebrate Advent. God is absolutely committed to the human race. And he wants to use us. And he answers prayers through people. Third thing. We need to be looking for people that God is calling. In uh, 19, verse 19. So God speaks to Elijah. And then verse 19 says, So Elijah went out from there and he found Elisha. Elijah had to do something. God spoke and then he had to take an action. I don't think Elisha showed up on his doorstep like an Amazon package. And I don't think they had GPS. And I don't even know how long that took. We read it like it was like that. He might have been looking for him for a month. I don't know. I mean, it takes a long time to walk places, right? Even if you got a donkey, it takes a while. So, but he had to do something. We have to be looking. We have to use our eyes. And when Elijah finds him, he puts his cloak over him. This cloak that represents the power and the presence and the spirit of God. And he lays it on someone else. He's willing to say, I'm willing to give up some of who I am to disciple this person because that's more important. So are you discipling anybody in your life right now? Are you putting your cloak on someone? If you have a cloak, it doesn't have to be a cloak. You know what I'm saying? It's a metaphor. Who are we spending time with? Are we looking? It could be your kids. It could be your spouse. It could be people at your work. It should be people here. Could be your neighbor. But it's not just hanging out with them or saying to your neighbor when you interact, when you like get your mail. It's an intentional thing where you're pouring into their lives. You're trying to do something and you're sacrificing for that. I would like to suggest that there's almost nothing more important than discipleship. If Jesus says, go, go therefore and make disciples, I think it's important. <laughs> the disciples took it seriously. He doesn't say, go therefore and preach to the masses, though that's good to do. He says, go make disciples because disciples embody the gospel. People see Jesus and his message through people. We start to see the love of Jesus through people. It's that important. So who are you discipling? Are you discipling? Are you thinking about that for your life? I would challenge you to think about who you are investing your time into. Now we have to explore what does it mean to be called? So Elijah finds Elisha, puts his cloak on him, and he's going to start pouring into his life. What is Elisha's responsibility to this call? What does it mean to be called by God? The first thing is that a decision must be made in response to God's call. Whenever somebody calls you, whatever it is, you have to make a decision, right? You have to. If I call you on the phone, ring, 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 and you see my number pop up, and you have to make a decision. Do I want to talk to Danny or not? People don't take my calls. I'm just kidding. But we all do this, right? You're like, nah. just like I'm going to do the side button so it still like it makes it look like I didn't just answer, but you know you didn't. Or you answer and you're like, hello, hey, how's it going? Great, blah, blah, blah. 
or when someone rings your doorbell. You have a decision to make. You go through your list of people it could be. Am I expecting anybody? Is it Amazon? Is it somebody spreading a mission about another anything, right? You have a decision. Are you going to answer the doorbell or are you not? To not make a decision is a response. To let it go is to say no. And we have to be really clear about that. The difficulty is that in our culture, and I would say even in our Christian culture, we have distanced ourselves from calling. We don't like calling. It makes us uncomfortable. And I get it. It makes me uncomfortable too. Because we want control. We don't want to be told what to do. For example, going back to what I said, if I ring your doorbell, most of us now won't even ever do it. We get these ring systems so we can tell who it is. And all it does is make us not answer the door ever. We can even talk to them through it. So we just want to stay as far away because if I go to the door, I have to have some kind of interaction with this person. I don't know how that's going to turn out. Or phone calls. Nobody answers the call anymore. The only person who answers calls, I think, is like my dad. My dad will always answer in the wrong time. He's like in the middle of talking to someone else. I'm like, why did you answer? Anyways, we don't do that. Or think about this. I know this has happened to you. You're texting with someone. Da, 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 da. Right? Going back and forth. Quick. And I'm like, forget this. This is taking forever. I'm just going to call him. You call him, goes a voicemail. Right? You know who you are. Why? Because like it means that you're going to have to talk and you have to make decisions and we want it. We like staying away from it. Why? I think we like autonomy. I think we like control. And I think when God calls us to something, we're scared of what that might mean for us. I'm not talking about salvation right now. I'm talking about God calling every one of us to step into his kingdom and to live and to do something he's called us to do. And we don't like it because we know it's not about us. And I want it to be about me. I'm all about me. And you're all about you. But God's call is not about us, and yet it absolutely involves us. And so we struggle to say yes because we wonder what that might mean for our life. Is that going to affect my free time? Could it affect my money? Could it affect, you name it, right? And we need to be honest about those things. So what is calling? Uh, There's a book by Timothy Keller called Every Good Endeavor, and it's an incredible book. I would highly recommend it. And he talks about calling, and I'm just going to read his words because they're much better than mine. He says this, and it's on the screen. All human work is not merely a job, but a calling. The Latin word vocare, to call, is at the root of our common word vocation. Today, the word often means simply a job, but that was not the original sense. A job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for them rather than for yourself. And so our work can be a calling if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interest. As we shall see, thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person and undermines society itself. Listen to this again. A job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for them rather than for yourself. This is why we struggle with calling. But I want to say to you, God is calling you to something bigger than yourself. Say yes to that call. And it could be 
anywhere. It could be anything, but it scares us because to be called by God means to live and work for him and not just for ourselves. And I know that's difficult, but that's what he's called us to. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. He says this, but you are a chosen people. He's taking what God spoke to Israel a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we are called to declare the praises of God. We are, declare, we are called to be people that are not about just us. Elijah was calling Elisha to something that was going to be bigger than himself. God is doing the same for us today. So to say yes to God's call means that we're saying yes to putting God and our neighbor first. And this is what God has always been about. Secondly, the call of God requires one to reimagine their old work for the vocation God is now calling them to. When we're called by God in our lives, God wants us to start to reimagine what our lives look like. I'll give you some examples, right? Elisha not only said yes to the call, but then he goes and he leaves his old stuff. He chops up the plowing equipment, starts this bonfire, slaughters all the oxen, has this massive barbecue, feeds, I'm assuming, his family and his community, blesses them, and then he's off to the races with Elijah to take on Ahab and Jezebel. He makes a decision. It costs him something. But what's interesting, if you really pay attention to what's happening here in this text, is there's some things that should stick out to us about how God is calling him. It says that Elisha had been plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. So he was a sower plow fields, plant seeds. He's, this, is, this is an agricultural thing, right? Talks about breaking up the earth. So he's a guy who works the ground. He's used to doing that. The word 12, he talks about he had 12. 12, if you see a number in the Bible, pay attention. They love numbers. And 12 for the Hebrew people is a, is, a, is a number about perfect government. Think about this. There was 12 tribes of Israel. There's going to be 12 apostles. 12 is important. So he's, he, he used to plow fields and he had 12 yoke of oxen. And now God's saying, hey, 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 I got a new job for you. It's kind of the same, but it's different. Now you're going to start plowing the fields of the nation of Israel. You're going to start plowing hearts. You're going to start sowing seeds into people from my nation, right? It's the same, but it's different. And God does something similar with David, right? David's a shepherd, right? He's just out there doing his sheep thing. God's like, yeah, I know you were a shepherd. I want you to take what that kind of meant. And now I'm going to call you to shepherd my people, Israel. You see what God's doing? He's making people reimagine their call. Jesus does a very similar thing in Matthew chapter four, where he's walking. He says, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They're casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. You know this, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. It's a very similar story 
to Elisha. God's like, hey, you were fishing for people and that was cool. I want you to start fishing for souls. I'm going to have to go after people. Notice that God's call always reorients you toward people. It's not about sheep. It's not about fish. It's not about oxen. It's about people. People, people, people. God is redeeming people. And so I'm not saying you need to chop up your business and start a fire, you know, like I don't want you all to quit your jobs. What I want to invite you is to rethink about the way you look at where you spend your time. What if you looked at your job as something God has actually called you to do for him? What if you looked at your kids, what it means to be a father or a mother? What if I looked at that this is something God's called me to do? It starts to change the way you think about it. It's not just about the work, it's about the people. The last thing, the essence of God's call is service. At the end of this passage, it says that Elisha becomes the servant of Elijah. He doesn't immediately become the the biggest prophet out there. He becomes an apprentice and he's going to learn from this guy. And a lot of people here have been through apprentice stuff for the jobs that they do. He needs to learn some things. He needs to have a place where he can mess up. But I got to tell you, the Hebrew word for servant is probably exactly what you think it is. It is not glamorous. It is servitude. It means minister, to serve, to attend, to wait on, to work for a servant, usually of a lower status person. The call of God in our lives, I hate to break it to you, is to serve other people. It just is. And so many of you here model this so beautifully. We have a church that serves incredibly. And I want to call you to keep doing that. But if we don't like it, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 20. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is exactly what Jesus did. So I want to say two things, encourage you. And I'm saying these to myself. Do not be too proud to serve others. Don't let pride get in the way. Elisha did not let his pride get in the way of becoming the servant of Elijah. Our own savior, Jesus Christ, gets down and washes the feet of his disciples. Right? Are we greater than our master? There shouldn't be anything God could call us to do for others that we would say no to. And this is challenging. So just know going into that, of course it's going to hurt a little bit because it goes against this thing in our hearts, this thing called sin, which is like, no, it's about you, man. You just got to do you, right? We hear all this stuff, right? But God's saying, well, yeah, but it's actually about loving other people and doing that in healthy ways. I'm not saying let someone abuse you or anything like that. Do not hear me wrong. I'm talking about putting other people first in a way that honors Jesus Christ. Don't be too proud to serve others. Secondly, if you are holding on to your pride, you will never be discipled. 
Because to be a disciple means you're putting yourself into a place of humility. You're acknowledging you need to learn. You're acknowledging that you need other people to pour into your life. Every single person here, I don't care what your age is, needs someone to be pouring into their life. And I bet if we were honest, we would all say, yes, absolutely. The oldest person in this room would probably say, I still need people to pour into my life and give me wisdom and encourage me and to push me forward. We all need that. What's interesting is that Elisha, because he humbles himself and puts himself in this position, later on in, in 2 Kings, if you want to keep reading, he has the boldness and the audacity as Elijah is going to get taken up into a whirlwind of heaven and fire, which is crazy. He asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he gets it. And he does double the recorded miracles that Elijah did. So in the Bible, there's eight miracle kind of things that Elijah, there's 16 that Elisha does. Because of his willingness to be discipled and to step into this process, God does even more things through Elisha. And that's the invitation to us today. Jesus says a similar thing to the disciples. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. They will do even greater things than these because I'm going to my father. Right? My heart, my goal would be, I want the people that I spend my time with to do things way better than I could ever do them. Right? We, we want this for our kids typically, right? What if our goal was just, I want people that I pour my life into to take this further than I ever could. I want to elevate them. And if you're doing that and someone's doing that for you, you start to see what kind of thing gets created. It's incredible. This is what we're being invited to because Jesus saves people. Do not hear me wrong. Only the spirit of God saves people. But he's calling you and me to disciple people by his spirit living in us. And so as we close this snapshot, from Elijah, I hope it gets you thinking about what calling means, what God might be inviting you and me into. It's a both and. You need an Elijah in your life and you need an Elisha in your life. You need both of those things, regardless of what age you are. God's philosophy of ministry has been the same since the beginning. It's all about people. He wants his gospel message in people. And because we live in a broken world, God is using you and me to live renewed lives that spread his gospel. It's not an accident that our values, the acronym is renewed. God wants to use you to be an answer to people's prayers. God wants to raise people up in this place and outside of our church to be the answer to people's prayers. That in the midst of division and all sorts of chaos that is happening, all over the place, that we might be people who are grounded in the word of God and grounded in God's heart, that we might bring shalom and peace to those places and speak truth and love and that we would be those kind of people. I invite you to be that person. Jesus spent most of his time with a bunch of people, with the, actually a smaller amount of people, pours into them and then he says to them, hey, you guys go do it now. That's the model. On some level, it's so easy. It's so easy, anybody could do it. But it's difficult enough that all of us kick and scream to not do it sometimes, if we're honest. And I want to invite you into that. 
Let's be people who invest in the lives of other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that still speaks, God, that this story about your prophets from thousands of years ago can speak directly into our hearts right now. God, I pray that we would think about what you are calling us to do. That we would have the courage to say yes to your call. And that we would be honest about the places and ways that we want to say no. And that we would ask you to work on those things. And God, I pray that we would have eyes to see the people you're calling us to, to invest time in, to run the race with. God, you are working through people. You want to answer prayers through us. God, we're humbled by that. We pray that you would give us the courage to put people first, to love you and to love our neighbor. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.